Good morning, RIP John Le Carre, and welcome to start your week from the bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison, and here at the crack of dawn, I've got Roz Taylor to try and explain what the week to come holds. How are you today, Roz? Oh, pretty well, you know. <laughs> Good. Shame about John Le Carre, isn't it? And and kind of ironic that he should die this week as a as a major enemy of Brexit. Yeah, I wasn't a big Le Carre fan, I must confess. I read The Spy Who Came In From The Cold because everyone reads that, don't they? It's always in, when you go on holiday, it's in your, uh, wherever you're staying and you just read it. I, I like my spy thrillers with a bit more glamour and a bit less grit in it. <laughs> I'm more of a Bond fan, I'm afraid. But nonetheless, you know, it, it is it is that. Yeah, the, the, the quote that bubbled to the surface was, uh, he, he wrote of Brexit, one day somebody will explain to me, why it is that at a time when science has never been wiser or the truth more stark or human knowledge more available, populists and liars are in such pressing demand. And his kind of theme was that Britain was ultimately having to adjust its attitude to itself, that, you know, accept that there was no no heroes, no glamour, Roz, I'm sorry, no kind of Rolexes with, um, with sort of special gadgets inside them. Uh, you know, we're reduced in power and prestige. And, and that I always thought that was kind of Britain growing up. You know, accepting that you know the world is a cruel place and that and it, we're not necessarily able to be black and white heroes, and it seems like we've gone we've gone backwards on that. You know, we've now sort of, as we saw over the weekend, trying to inhabit this 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 fantasy world of uh, plucky Britain. Yeah, we got over Suez and then we regressed again, basically. Absolutely. Anyway, the week top of the list again. It's the EU trade talks again, Groundhog Day all over again. We thought we'd either be dissecting a deal today or no deal but instead we're dissecting yet another photograph of boris johnson supposedly working late with his tie off how do they make him look even more tired and disheveled there's not much there's not much further to go is there when you with you with kind of original boris it's hard to make him look worse yeah and it does uh, we know that he's indecisive that's one of his major character flaws and this is really showing that up because if he wanted to do if he was sure and if he was sure that he wanted to do a deal or indeed that he didn't want to do a deal he could have done one by now it's all on him now he is the only person stopping progress or or basically preventing new deal from from going forward so it this is basically a man who is hovering on the edge of indecision, exactly as he did on that night when he had written those two articles, one in favour of Brexit and one against it, and then eventually plumped for the one against it because he thought that that would be more fun. So we wait and see. So it's been agreed that the talks will be extended, possibly even to New Year's Eve. The EU is putting the chance of no deal at 80%, but they're telling EU embassies that progress has been made. Can we do another week without a decision? Can political establishments here and across Europe do another week without something being decided? I think, unfortunately, really, we can because now the momentum is all towards Christmas. I think it belatedly occurred to Boris Johnson that it would be a very bad look to announce no deal and to have the public stockpile, which they would, in the run-up to Christmas, just when people were consuming a lot more food anyway, and it would be, frankly, a disaster. It gives him a little bit of breathing space because after Christmas, a lot of the senior political journalists are... um, not quite, perhaps not on holiday, but perhaps not engaged as much as they are before. They're That's a brilliant attention. euphemism there. Not engaged yeah. as they were before. What you mean is lying around on Boxing Day with a raging hangover. Yeah, yeah. I, it's just basically there's not going to be as much scrutiny. 
And he, uh, not having so much scrutiny, gives him a bit of breathing space. It lets us see as well just how bad things are in terms of COVID. It now looks as though London is going to go into tier three. It's a very bad look for London to go into tier three and announce a no deal at the same time. So it's really for Johnson now about gauging the mood of the country. I think a few days back, he thought that Britain was feeling pretty positive about itself because of all the excitement over the vaccine. And then in the last few days, things have taken a much more negative turn. And he is not, uh, he, he is not blind to public opinion. So much will much more de- uh, depend on just what the public mood does in the next few days. The extent to which people were engaged with the detail was not great in the first place. Now, disengagement seems seems total. Is there any way at all, uh, you know, is there ever going to be a good time to basically jam this back in people's faces and jam it back in the headlines? It, you know, it's not going to be Christmas. It's not going to be the new year. When When is, you know, is there ever going to be a propitious time to say I've made a decision one way or another? No, there isn't. But if you're a procrastinator like Johnson, then <laughs> this is this is what you do. This is what he's been doing all his life as a journalist. And it's what he wants to do now as prime minister. The man is jerking us all along on a string. He's jerking thousands and thousands, if not millions of people's futures along like this. And it is just unbelievably narcissistic. And, you know, I would almost say psychopathic uh, to, to do this. Uh, and it, I yes, I, I find myself, you know, there've been times in the last few days when I've been close to tears, frankly, at with despair at the way this country is being run and the irresponsible way in which he thinks it's acceptable to behave and the way he which just he keeps on getting away with it. And it's all down, unfortunately, as I've said before, it's down to our fascination with Johnson as a personality. And we cannot seem to let go of this man and what will become of him and what he will do. And as long as we remain obsessed with Johnson, uh, we will be trapped as a country in this situation. Well, I mean, I don't know whether he is getting away with it, because all the reports from last week were that everything he tried was a car crash. The meeting with Ursula von der Leyen was a car crash where he attempts to bluster her into sidelining Barnier and, and he waffles on reheating kind of cliches about Germans. That doesn't work. Then he tries to call Merkel and Macron and is quite clearly and publicly rebuffed. Uh, you know, all the all the Johnson gambits of kind of, you know, man to man, let's sort this out in a back room. None of it is working. And he's just left with this decision on his own. Do, do, do you think that's... I mean, as you say, you know, he's getting away with it, but, you know, it's clearly not working for him in, in terms of his credibility as a prime minister at home. No, and all he has now left is the press and the willingness of some sections of the press to back him, because it's absolutely true what you say. But I don't think readers of The Telegraph and The Express and The Star and The Daily Mail and indeed even The Metro will have heard these things. They are very much being circulated in the uh, in the Guardian, in the FT to an extent, and on Twitter. And there are many, many people in this country who don't follow those, those outlets. We don't have a shared media narrative anymore. And what we see as total incompetence, a large number of the, a large amount of the population in Britain is being fed a very different story about, yes, brinkmanship, but also British defiance, gunships, protecting British fish, need I say more, and a completely different patriotic narrative that is designed to 
shore up the idea of Britain as embattled but fighting defiantly against a stubborn and cruel Europe. I know that you saw the Mail on Sunday's lead yesterday about which quoted someone, no one knows who, as saying that Angela Merkel wanted Britain to crawl on broken glass in order to get get a deal. (laughs) You know, who was this person? We have no clue. Is that her view? Of course it isn't. And yet it's the lead in the Mail on Sunday. It's just extraordinary. Um, A huge part of that that, that sort of myth of British exceptionalism, of course, is that we have to be dumbed down by the dastardly Europeans in order for it to work, which sort of leads you towards the idea that it will be no deal because it's only the betrayal myth, it's only the Britain alone myth that sustains this this political project at all. And the EU is talking about an 80% likelihood uh, of no deal. As you say, it's all just in, in, in Johnson's hands. And you were saying on one of the podcasts last week that Johnson is essentially a gambler and is likely to choose the most dramatic option, not necessarily the best option, but the most dramatic option. Yeah, and I think this is very different from COVID, for example, because in COVID, Johnson has eventually been forced to do things that he hasn't wanted to do by the presence of scientists and sage and so on. Those people are not in the room anymore when it comes to Brexit. There, are, there is not that steadying influence there. He has surrounded himself with a cabinet who are yes men and women. So it's not, I guarantee you that the man is agonising right now. He thinks he knows this is the most important decision of his life. Um, it's even more important than all the other incredibly bad decisions he's made that have ruined this country. He knows how important this is and he can't make up his mind what to do. It is pathetic to see our country reduced to this state and to uh, on the whim of a man who cannot make up his mind but knows his destiny is somehow inextricably linked to Brexit but doesn't yet know whether that means he should go for the hardest hardest possible Brexit or whether Brexit has now served its purpose and he can leave it behind and his personality alone is enough to take the country forward uh, which he would also like to believe so he will be having an enormous dilemma now it's just a it's just a tragedy that we have to witness it. So I suppose we can cheer ourselves up with the thought that however miserable we might be, Boris Johnson is feeling even worse. It's the week before Christmas. There's 12 working days to the end of transition. That's the worst carol ever. Retailers are already preparing for no deal. There are huge lorry tailbacks on both sides of the channel. We're told the government's been uh, instructing supermarkets uh, through back channels to stockpile for Brexit. Uh, the supermarkets reacted quite angrily to this. Do you think we're likely to see the return of panic buying? Panic buying the week before Christmas would be quite a thing. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, this is probably why he did, hasn't announced, Johnson hasn't announced no deal in the 10 days before Christmas because the the subsequent pressure on supermarket supply chains with Christmas as well would be would be insane. Yes, there will be panic buying. And now, of course, people know that they need to panic buy because, you know, even when they're told, as they were done, as they were told yesterday, that they don't need to panic buy because things that are going to be affected by Brexit are mostly fresh fruit and vegetables. And so there's no point. That isn't going to hold much sway with people who think, well, if there aren't fresh fruit and vegetables, I need to stock up on, you know, tin fruit, tin veg, frozen peas etc etc it doesn't make and, and they also know that when other people panic buy they need to panic buy as well because it's it's becomes a a, a cumulative thing yes. and exponential and you can't stop it so the very suggestion that you shouldn't panic buy will prompt people to panic buy yeah 
And of course, uh, we haven't even mentioned toilet paper and, uh, and or, or the fact that the, the simplest solution to a toilet paper shortage is the one that Britain will never take: B days. Can you imagine? I love I love B days. I remember the first time I saw a B day, and it was in it will be in France in about oh, 1982, and and I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a sort of sink, and uh, for the rest of the holiday, I think I called it a bottom washer. And <laughs> there we go. That could be our spin-off project for next year: British B days for British bottoms. Um, before we move on uh, to talk about other cheer- cheerful things, um, do you think it's likely these talks will extend beyond the 31st of December? That's being floated now. The idea that it can sort of uh, we can we can sort of develop some form of injury time I can see that happening if the COVID rates really take off even more than they are at the moment I can see that being as an excuse for an extension yes well that does take us neatly to coronavirus and you mentioned earlier this talk that London is going to move up to tier three Greenwich has just had to close all of its schools after a period of what's described as exponential growth and rates are rising in all 32 London boroughs Ros, you edit the LSE's COVID blog. What, what are you expecting this week? I'm expecting large numbers of schools to declare that they are shutting down because they've got so many cases. We've got a situation now where there is going to be mass testing going on in certain London boroughs where cases are particularly high in the north and east, like Havering and, and uh, Redbridge and so on. As that happens, um, as has already happened with my daughter's school, for example, where year 11 has completely closed because of the number of cases in it, um, that they schools will take unilateral decisions to close themselves to close themselves down, and of course, if you look at it from the perspective of do you want kids infecting their grandparents on Christmas Day, that does make sense. But it really should have been thought about before, um, and planned for a little better, especially given, as I have said many times before, just how much school kids have already lost in the past year. I mean, it is disquieting that these decisions are having to be made at local level rather than having some sort of coordinated central response from, from government but government has been threatening head teachers who have floated the idea of teaching kids online is there any kind of coordinated response from central government on the education side I think there is an understandable desperation to keep schools open because school opening was actually has actually been a, a relative success compared to other parts of the economy and it was always said by the government that schools should come before pubs um, after they decided that uh, they they changed their tune because as we know pubs opened uh, way back in early in the summer and most schools didn't most year groups didn't but then the narrative changed and they said schools before pubs and now we're quite clearly seeing a a switch in that and um, particularly in London where pubs are still open, we're seeing a privileging of the uh, of, of uh, retail in the run up to Christmas and hospitality ahead of schools. Um, cities in the north have been on tier three for weeks since the last lockdown ended. If London doesn't go to tier three this week, are people going to see it as uh, special treatment for the capital again? Yeah, they will. And I can't see a way that it won't. I think the efforts to test, to mass testing in schools were an attempt to try and stave off the problem because a lot of the the cases have been in in secondary schools. There hasn't been a huge amount of pressure on the NHS yet for that reason, although, of course, uh, it it will spread to older generations. But uh, I don't see any way to avoid going into tier three now. I'd be amazed if, if London didn't. There's been these weird calls to split London with the sort of the more infected outer London going into tier three and central London staying in tier two. You know, would, would that work? Can you have different rules in one city 
I mean, I, I remember Ian Duncan Smith advocating this in the House of Commons, and somebody had to point out that the tube network tends to go through different boroughs. Are you going to test people as they, you know, pass from one station to another? Yeah, of course. So Ian Duncan Smith is from Chingford, which is not on the tube. Um, it's on it's on the uh, rail network, so it's a bit harder to get into central London from uh, from Chingford than it is from, say, Bounds Green. But the the problem the problem is that London is so interconnected, and when people in Britain, in, sorry, people in London think about going out for a night, they usually think about going into the centre of London. I think it would be very hard to split up boroughs. You know, same thing, you know, kids go to school, live in one borough, go to school in another borough. The boroughs are not terribly important in terms of people's social lives and education and working lives in London. They're not central. And that's why it's very difficult to treat London as anything other than than one one whole. All of our non-London listeners are now shouting, shut up about London uh, at their podcast device. Uh, for a lot of people, this is the end of a whole year from working from home and some graduates have been starting their careers working from their parents' back room. I believe you've been drawing morals on this from the TV series Industry that's just finished on BBC Two, Ross. Yeah, I got a bit addicted to Industry because it's such... Um, it's so amoral. It's so full of people, as nasty people, amoral people behaving selfishly that I found it quite an escapist relief from a year that sometimes felt dominated by a very laudable but but sometimes quite pious wholesomeness. Here are people who are, you know, snorting coke out of each other's bums. And if you ever wonder how the BBC would portray that, then I recommend you you watch Industry. It's set in a film. It's set in a, a city firm, rather like Goldman Sachs, and it follows a group of graduate trainees on training desks. It is this format is a real winner because we saw that with this life following people who are just going into the world of work and what becomes of them, and it, re- it the characterization is is brilliant. It's it's very very good, and also it gets up the Daily Mail's nose as well, which uh, is always a pleasure. I would love to see the di- BBC diversify its it's beyond Goldman Sachs clones and maybe do something like following people just going into a seminary that would that would make an interesting change or something something like that but as i say it's an absolutely winning format or an exciting young podcast company who knows um yeah <laughs> one other thing to look out for this week uh today this very day monday uh in the u.s the electoral college is voting to confirm joe biden as the next president this will completely definitively end donald trump donald trump's absurd challenges but there were near riots over the weekend from his supporters who simply are not accepting reality we can expect this to worsen this week can't we we may do, yeah. Um, it's a lot. A lot. A lot depends on what instructions or hints Trump may give about what he wants to see happen. And one of the things I do take comfort from is that he has not exactly, you know, precisely instigated a civil war. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty low bar. That's a pretty- yeah. It's a low bar, but people did. Some people did predict that he would urge some of his followers to go out on the streets and fight. And he hasn't done that. And I hope, obviously, that he won't do that. And what he will end up doing is slipping quietly out of the White House with as little fuss and pomp as possible, really out of a sense of shame. Um, uh, I, I hope that won't go. There, no, there is no central coordination at the moment, and, you've, and that's got to be a good thing. It's basically small groups of very, very angry, very disaffected people Linking online, yes, but not being directly inspired 
by a senior figure to do what they're doing. I don't think you're going to get your wish because he's planning to run an alternative event during Biden's inauguration, where supposedly he will uh, announce his 2024 run. So the idea that he's going to slither away and then be seen again, I think uh, wishful thinking. But I suppose we could we could call every single one of our podcasts, we can expect this to worsen, can't we? But that, that should be the motto. Anyway, Roz, thank you for joining me to start your week. Roz is going to be with us for the last Oh God, What Now 2020 at the end of this week. And of course, our Christmas live Zoom for Patreon people at eight o'clock on Thursday, the 17th. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up. We'll see you there. Roz, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And we'll see you all next time. Cheers. Bye-bye. Start Your Week with The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.